0: Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Well, hello again. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter, and it's my pleasure to bring you these stories every week of the people, companies, and ideas shaping the future of agriculture. We are proud to be a part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. If you're interested in agriculture and want to check out some other interesting podcasts and YouTube channels surrounding agriculture, uh, go check that out at farmruralag.com. Well, we continue on today with our series on blockchain. Uh, I really enjoy, just just generally on the show, bringing on startup founders because I find it's where the uh, optimism and idealism and... um promise and hope of of technologies like blockchain meet the road, where where it meets the practical nature of needing to create business models that serve a real purpose. And and we certainly have an example of that on the show today. I uh, have Raja Ramachandran, who's one of the founders of Ripe.io. Him and his team use technologies such as IoT, the cloud algorithms, machine learning, and of course, blockchain to solve large global problems surrounding food. Uh, Raja has a background in finance and in foreign exchange trade. Um, And before he founded uh, Ripe.io, he'd also helped co-found and COO of a couple venture-funded startups in the past. So uh, you'll really enjoy Raja's perspective and his ability to simply state some of these complex uh, issues surrounding blockchain. I I enjoy this conversation. I know you will too. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Raja Ramachandran. So,
1: ripe.io is formed to answer very simple questions, which are: Where does my food come from? Who grew it? How is it curated? Um, how is it transported? Who touched it? Is it safe? Does it taste good? Is it nutritious? These are all things that consumers are really asking for, and are causing you know some significant changes in the whole food supply chain, from big brands to growers to distributors. And so, we created ripe.io to help solve for the data problems and the lack of harmonization so that you can create real transparency so that you trust what you're hearing from these different brands and different players. And so um, in a nutshell, that's what we do. We're basically a service that allows um, participants in the supply chain to share information, validate it, and create a real assertion so that they can use it as an analytics tool. They can use it for content to make claims about what they do. Um, They can trace food. They can have food safety. And these are all applications that run over the network.
0: Excellent. And as I understand your story from uh, doing a little research, you kind of got into this through the financial route. I know you kind of became interested in blockchain. And I'm just curious with with all of the many different directions you could go with an interest in blockchain, uh, why food?
1: good question. You know, it's kind of, you know, I guess people have epiphanies. I'm not one of those type of people, but I think I did have one. Long story short, I, you know, I've got a long career in financial trading and so have been around technologies, very, very advanced technologies most of my life professionally, as well as, you know, understanding risk and complicated scenarios around things like foreign exchange and capital markets and derivatives and so um, I actually got involved with trying to understand Bitcoin more so blockchain about about four plus years ago so that um, you know it was fascinating in the sense that decentralization peer-to-peer networks um, you know are a way to do to to really rethink business relationships transactions records management and so on so as a result I actually became part of a, a team uh, that was a really large consortium of banks, uh, a company called r three and uh, it really allowed me to understand all these different platforms that were coming through uh, that were ledger based cryptocurrency based blockchain based bitcoin based ethereum you name it and uh, and so I ran product cases or product development on the roadmap and use cases at an industry level you know and the long and short of it is is that uh, you know Certainly done well and have made money for banks in my career. And and you know, as I looked at this technology, I thought, well, you know, banks are going to be fine and financial institutions, and they'll own this new layer effectively of software. And I thought, well, there's got to be more to this than that. And um, now myself and a couple of partners started evaluating other verticals. <clears throat> you know, did blockchain make sense so that you can create real and dynamic change? For you know, we looked at insurance, healthcare, legal. Transportation, um, law, music, whatever. There's a whole series of things that we actually uh, looked at, and and ultimately we got introduced to some folks, um, uh, you know, in the food supply chain. And the first was really a company called Analog Devices, and they had sensors uh, of which supported a project they call Internet of Tomatoes. So we love the name, really like what they were doing, and basically their their concept was to. You know, monitor live conditions of the growing process of tomatoes so you can figure out how to create a perfect or better tomato. And so through it, we really learned a lot about supply chain and then very quickly saw that blockchain would work well in the food supply chain because it's highly distributed. <clears throat> you know, data and workflows are all very, very disparate. There's no sort of centralized, you know, entities that sit in all of this. And there's a great deal of a lack of trust. And uh, it fit all the elements that we thought with blockchain. And so that's how we got started. We worked with them to create our very first pilot. That led to another one. And, um, you know, and, and so that was sort of the professional basis. At a personal level, I learned a lot about, you know, the, the food supply chain and the waste and spoilage and all these things that we can improve upon. And so at a personal level, I thought, well, you know, I'd like to leave, you know, a little bit more, you know, to my, you know, my kids about, you know, what it means to be a professional, what it means to give back. So as a side aspect of this, I'd like to see this evolve into a real improvement in the supply chain. So it really hit on both personal and professional and professional levels
0: and you you mentioned your your first pilot was with that analog devices the internet of tomatoes and and i guess using their um connected devices that are monitoring the quality of the tomato to also i i guess uh translate that that data along the supply chain is that is that a correct assumption
1: it is and so we you know so we didn't you know they had the internet of tomatoes project which i concluded we you know we partnered with them um in a in a small township called peterborough new hampshire and so, yes, to what you just said was that they provided um in field crop sensors, which captured things like temperature, light, and humidity um, and then they also partnered with a company like to do spectrometer reading, so you get a chemistry reading of the tomato. so what we did is we set up ledgers so that we can capture information directly from you know the farm right we you know th- this was done with a small um a community project called the Cornucopia Project. Wonderful people, and you know it's it's done in in tandem with high school students and the local um, sort of a, a hop farm that's there. And so the idea was that we structured this program so that the township could understand does technology like this help improve quality of farming and ultimately does that help the sales that farmers want to obtain in the area and so that was the idea behind it all and so yes we collected information that came directly from uh the cloud in which the iot devices were submitting data and that was analog devices and we also captured information about the farm like soil type npk growing degree days you know how high is the the vines and a lot of very very specific things um and then we combine that with also ultimately, um, spectrometry reading so that we could figure out what's the brick score, sucrose, fructose, so that we can get a sense of flavor profiles and ultimately what is the quality of that tomato. And so that was the outcome, you know, so the blockchain captured the information, shared it amongst the different participants in the chain, and then ultimately created, uh, you know, sort of these records that said, all right, here's the, the, the assertions or, that were made that these tomatoes and this cultivar was supposedly sweet. And, you know, did the evidence provided against this, you know, showcase that that was true? And so it was really this notion of a reputation system that would help, um, you know, all of these things. So, yes, that was the, the very first pilot that we did.
0: Interesting. And obviously that's an unprecedented amount of information about how a tomato is grown. Uh, one question I have <laughs> about that is who wants that? I mean, you know, I mean, no, no, nobody's going to sit in their supermarket and be like, what was the bricks on this tomato? And, um, you know, how does that relate to, you know, when it got rainfall? I'm, I'm just curious, like, uh, where does the data end up and where, where is its value sort of created?
1: Yeah, it's a good question, right? I mean, you know, some there is an overwhelming amount of information. And for the end consumer, even the most discerning ones, they just can't integrate it all into buying, uh, you know, decisions. So so how does it become meaningful? Mm-hmm. So a couple of things, you know, very much <clears throat> it is about, yeah, and this goes to the value proposition of what blockchain ultimately you know, provides, is number one, You know, the information that's gathered during this process, you know, says a lot about how farmers or growers, and look, they know very much about, you know, what makes the best uh, growing conditions for them. But this confirms or affirms what they do, and it may actually add new insight into into what they do regarding say tomatoes so there is certainly sort of insight as to okay as we collect this information and it goes all the way to the buyer and they get transparency to the buyer that now could mean certain things because the buyer may say look I don't want them as sweet or I want them more ripe you know does that mean that I harvest 7 days later and so on right so there's meaningfulness there hmm. as far as the um, you know the second part of it which is like These chemistry scores, in the end, when it comes down to it, if you have this information and you're a restaurant or a buyer or a grocery store, you then can manage that data and the narrative. You know, for example, if you're trying to match it against a menu item or some type of recipe... Well, you know, at this point, you can say that this has this sort of flavor profile, this level of quality. It makes good sense to do X. So there's a future where in the end you have to make it consumer friendly. And, you know, we leave that up to the end uh, buyers to to figure it out. We just want to make sure that the data and the evidence are correct. And 100% accurate so that if a grocery store is making a claim that these are really great sourced tomatoes from this particular region, here's why, you know, they have something to back it up. So going back to the consumer in the end, you know, there are going to be aggregations, like particularly restaurants, I would say that are going to help define these type of things, you know, much more. So from that perspective, I think that the end consumer is asking for more they can easily get it. (laughs) And I think once you arbitrate sort of that, okay, that's an overwhelming amount of information, but into something that's really meaningful, like how long can I keep this in my fridge? When's the best time to cut and, and, you know, eat it
0: and on and on. That kind
1: of, that kind of end information is coming. And I think that's what we're here to support.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, you bring up a point that I really hadn't considered, which is I always think about the data moving Downstream, you know, from the farmer to the consumer, and obviously that is the heart of it. But I didn't think about what you mentioned of, of kind of the the feedback loop that that could create, where the consumer is then, you know, sending information back to the farmer about what they want, and I think that's that's a really interesting aspect of this that I, I actually hadn't really considered. Um, I, know, I know you mentioned, you know, the decentralization, the peer-to-peer network uh, that goes with blockchain, and, and that's what we've really focused on in this blockchain series so far. One thing I'm still trying to figure out for myself is, okay, if, if what we're doing is is kind of removing the need for middlemen and we're, we're taking, you know, we're making things more transparent, we're connecting, let's say in this case, the farmer to the consumer, where does, where's the business model and all that? Like, you know, how does a company insert themselves in the middle of something where the whole point is to get rid of the middle?
1: (laughs) So, you know, there's no doubt that that's one business model outcome of, of decentralization. In other words, you know, inherent in decentralization is that there is no central figure any longer. That's the concept we look at it slightly differently. We think that the other value that a decentralized network brings is that there is a lot of data that sit in silos of each participant in the chain of events or the ecosystem that represents some type of outcome, whether it's payments, whether it's an insurance contract, whether it's the building of a car, you know, or the taste of an apple. <clears throat> what happens is, is we unearth data that exists and resides in those silos, whether it's the farmer, the distributor, the packer, the processor, whoever it might be. And it gets exposed into a record that you can actually compile as almost a single record. And as a result, you now have a lot, you have a much, much more insight as to, you know, what that actually means. And so what we found in, in, you know, where we are today and listening to customers is that that becomes a much more robust record for what you know it, that comprises whether quality, an assessment of ripeness in fresh produce, for example, or even traceability? So, what people are seeing is that when you combine that information that they never had before, it creates really new insight, new analytics, new questions, new potentials for product, and honestly, new channels for revenue. So in a way, you know, the the business model is to support potentially new revenue growth and new channel growth because now you're seeing this information in a way that you never had seen it before, or you didn't really even know that existed, or you did, but you wanted it and never had the ability to get it. So if you're a large enterprise, like a big food supplier, like a Campbell's or Cargill, you know, you want to know what's happening in other people's supply chains. And all of a sudden, if you had that information, which you didn't have before, maybe because of contractual obligations or proprietary information restrictions, you know, if if the sharing is allowed to be uh, to be had, all of a sudden, that's the new type of thing that comes about. So we think of it more so from that perspective. Yes, there's always the notion you could knock out the middleman. But I mean, from our perspective, we're not really, our business model is really meant to support um improvements in the knowledge so that you have better insight as to why things should be you know, what can you do to improve the quality so we're very much about quality and we think that that's our business model is there to support it and it's it's really about access to the software access to the network you know and uh, and being able to acquire this 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 insight and data and that's what we do
0: Interesting. Yeah. So it's about empowering them with information that they wouldn't have before. And I would imagine, especially in the context of empowering them with more information about quality, probably the ones most likely to see value in that instantly would be would be the restaurants, as you mentioned, are those kind of your ideal, your ideal customers is maybe these restaurant groups that want the the top quality or, or how does that kind of customer relationship work for ripe.io?
1: Yeah. Folks constantly ask us, who is our customer? I mean, because ours is really a network play, we have a number of customers or constituents that participate. I mean, certainly we want to make we want to provide value to the grower. So to an extent, largely they will have access for for no charge, Um, you know, distributors and kind of the middle of the supply chain. Cold chain providers, third-party, you know, value folks that have processes that manage ripening, and and on and on. There's seed players. There are certainly packers, the big food suppliers, and so on. Right. So I think you know, initially we have to gain adoption, and you know, and so usually we engage with, with buyers or suppliers of, of food. So it could be, you know, a large enterprise, um, you know, that's out there, or even restaurants or dining services. And then we work with them to, um, you know, to bring that data from their supply chain into the blockchain. <clears throat> and then this way they can start to look at, like, how do they want to be able to share that information to, you know, fulfill their value, you know, whether it's improvement in supply chain operations, quality, inventory management, whatever it might be. So that's kind of step one is just to, you know, get a groundswell of, of initial adoption. Once we establish that, and we're actually finding that this, the middle of the supply chain is an interesting place because a lot of these folks actually have the data, but they haven't combined it together with the buyer requirements as well as the grower requirements. And so they want to create new channels for, you know, the the analytics that they provide, and we would be that channel for such a thing. So that's how we would start to look at expanding upon produce types, you know, because they have a lot of data. Um, and so from that perspective, our customers ultimately, it, you know, it will be sort of a network play and you'll have access to it. So the the risk and the challenge for us is obviously to make that hurdle over adoption. You know, can this go-to-market strategy work about, Sort of, you know, not forcing the hand of growers to join the network, but rather uh, showcase what's the value for them. How do I improve my pricing? How do I create new sales channels? If I wanted to add new varietals, you know, how do I know that I've got a marketplace for such a thing? And so the blockchain provides validity of all of the data so that you are being true to what you state so we think of it like that's kind of how we're looking at our adoption strategy and what does it mean to have customers so honestly the food supply chain is our customer and that's kind of how we'll grow the organization
0: very interesting yeah and i know you did a pilot i read a little bit about the sweet green pilot you did can you share a little bit more about that
1: Now, you know the sweet green pilot was really an extension of the experience that we had at peterborough um you know the same team one of our folks had a great relationship with uh, some of the supply chain team at, at sweet green and and talked to them about look you know if by looking at live conditions and monitoring them and leveraging a blockchain you know you might be able to get better insight as to things like what's the flavor profile does it match your you know, menu in October when we're looking at this in May and so on. So <clears throat> the sweet green was really an expansion of what we did at Peterborough. So we had a, a farm, uh, Warsbury farm in, um, in, uh, in Southern Massachusetts and uh, they allowed us to to monitor a whole series of tomatoes, um, you know, at their farm. Um, and the idea was to track it. And we had analog devices as a partner um, in the crop sensors, but we also added another partner, a group called BlueStream, and they have mobile sensors that we uh, were allowed to put into uh, the transportation side of things. So what it did, it allowed us to track the temperature, humidity, plus the motion in transport so that we can get a sense of, was there an impact to the tomato? And then ultimately, we did the same thing, have a spectrometer reading at the restaurant itself so that people could get a sense of, all right, well, what did this taste like? Taste is is a very subjective thing, so I don't like talking necessarily about taste, Mm -hmm. but ultimately it does come down to that. So what we did is we tracked all this information from, I think, what, June or so all the way through harvest in in mid-August. And then also we started tracking the information as it got delivered to bins and walk-ins all the way. And so we effectively were able to create this single longitudinal record of literally every tomato that we harvested. And, and went through. So we, we tracked it from, from seed and plant uh, and um, uh, placement within a hothouse all the way to the bin. And because we had a small number of tomato batches that we're dealing with, I mean, a few hundred, we're able to go ahead and track everything and literally down to the tomatoes. So it was really more of a proof of concept to say You know, one, how do you provide transparency for all participants in the supply chain? What are the values that they get out of it, particularly the distributor? Because they had to actually make some changes to the workflow. Um, And so is that something that they would accept in the future? Because this restaurant does daily delivery and they do it quite early in the morning. Um, You know, does that make sense for the future? And of course, for the restaurant, what values are there? For them, it's, it's really we source better, our food tastes better. We, um, you know, we we end up having a a better consumer experience. So it allowed us to basically build a business case for the whole thing Mm -hmm. and, you know, be able to talk about it in the context of what's the value for the farmer. You know, they learned some simple things like, you know, if we harvested a few days later, the ripeness profile is actually better and you get a sweeter tomato and it better match the menu. Didn't quite know that before. So these are little snippets of things that we learned along the way. So it allowed us to basically say, look, the blockchain as a data fabric and a a system of record of shared trust and a single record of that tomato is the key. Because then everybody just looks at that one record and they all recognize that that's the truth. If you believe that, the future then opens up to things about, well, how do you value the tomato now? How do you value these relationships? Did our existing contracts really embed that? And so on, right? And so there's a whole new future about as we expand this with, uh, with other you know, customers and green that we're going to address all of it. But no, it was, a, it was, a, it was an amazing learning experience. And you know, we obviously hope a good commerce experience for each of the participants involved in the future.
0: Right. And, and were those participants already working together? It just was a, a, a kind of a, uh, a confined enough supply chain that you could kind of get a buy-in from everybody?
1: Yes, it was definitely friendlies all the way around. So in that sense, they had, you know, worked together, but not exactly in this way. So there was a couple of workflow changes, but
0: yes. It would seem to me kind of the unsung heroes here of of blockchain are is this sensor technology. <laughs> if you wanted kind of a backdoor way to invest in blockchain as a future of food, it'd be these sensor companies. I mean, uh, if this is going to continue to take off, I would think the demand for for these sensors w- would be uh, pretty significant.
1: Potentially, I mean, I think that you know one thing that we're finding, you know, the the, the like. The sensor capabilities in agriculture, you know, particularly around the sort of, um, you know, local ecosystem plays, it's the beginning. It's the early days. And there's certainly a few companies like Analog Devices that have, um, you know, created great technology and a great starting point. Consumer Physics, uh, you know, one of their partners on spectrometry at a handheld level. A lot of this has a long way to go so that you can match the conditions that are really you know, some, some pretty harsh ones in the, in the field. <clears throat> so IoT and sensors are certainly, you know, a wave of the future. But I also think that, you know, I think that the, um, uh, you know, the other part of the unsung piece of it is really folks willing to share data so that you can create a better outcome. And, and that's really the strength of blockchain, you know, is to be able to create that single record that everyone can point to and go, I trust that. Because if you do that, and and as it's true, you've changed really how you view relationships, particularly now that you have new and more data. So yeah, I agree with you that, look, IOT is, I mean, as you know, investment in that sector is huge. A lot of big companies are going after it, and there's the notion that there's gonna be a trillion sensors all over the world, and someday that'll probably happen. And so you have to, you know, interoperate with them, harmonize it, utilize it the proper way, and also, you know, quite frankly, make sure that the privacy invasion is not too significant. Luckily, this is like out in the fields and so on, but data ownership is gonna be a big issue. So, um, you know, right now it's a little loose, but overall that's coming up as well.
0: Were you able to substantiate any uh, noticeable difference in your pilots related to logistical advantages to sharing this information? <laughs>
1: Interesting because we had obviously pretty limited play. You know, it was very cyclical about the distributor picking up at a particular time and dropping off at restaurants. Um, I, you know, we didn't examine it from that level, but I know that there are a number of folks when they look at it, like at the logistics, um, I think things like, you know, harvest dates, time and place, planting, you know, understanding labor. Understanding, you know, what gaps there were in the data itself submitting, what gaps that might have been because of weather, you know, and other sort of unforeseen types of economic events and so on. Like, <clears throat> I mean, you know, participants in the chain kind of know a lot of this. And so they have those questions. And I think that the next state of these deployments are going to be, well, how do I a, get a better detection of this, of the problem sets that I know? Tell me the problems that I don't know. And then how do I now have a system that I can rely upon Mm -hmm. that provides valid data and validation of all these things as you go forward? So, um, yeah. So from that perspective, I think that's it. When it comes to things like, like logistics changes, I mean, take, for example, what telematics does. It does things like route optimization, you know, best conditions and base environment. You know, those are all like those are all data input components that will come into play. And I think that's what I mean about once you recognize the things you know or don't know, then you're going to be looking at different tools to make certain things happen. Look, (laughs) route optimization in Boston. From, from you know where we were in subair I believe is yeah. I don't care what a telematics device tells you or Google. It's not easy. Yeah. I bet. So you know, Boston traffic is always an interesting thing.
0: Sure, I, I've heard I've heard claims about uh, what blockchain could do for food waste. It, you know, it, and obviously, um, listeners, at least longtime listeners of the show, w- will have a good concept of how. Uh, great, the food waste problem is, uh, you know, environmentally and just from a uh, just from a waste of resources standpoint. Um, how do you see blockchain playing into to the food waste problem, if at all?
1: Well, I mean, I think that um, you know the the blockchain provides a full, like, longitudinal look into the the supply chain. So. You know, if you look at the 40 percent that's wasted, that's claimed for the United States, a good chunk of its consumer, um, a little bit in transportation, certainly a chunk at the farm level. Um, and so you have to attack it from each of those things. You know, food waste have a number of contributing factors. Right. Certainly temperature is always a big one. Bacterials is a piece of it. A lot of it is just, you know, discolored, misshapen. Things that, that that basically turn into fruit, and I'm sorry, into uh, beverages or whatever. So I mean, you know, so like you said, your your group, your listener group will know all these different things. So what does blockchain do? You know, it won't. I don't see it necessarily being the you know the the, the point at the edge of a sword that solves the problem. Rather, ultimately, it should be the sword, right? That it makes up, like it combines the problem statement of each of the different participants that contribute to food spoilage um, consumers are going to be the hardest ones because in the end you got to get to the to the home or, or whatever it's going to be or even restaurants but overall you know by defining what are those attributes and contributors to those things and then do sort of benchmark testing at, you know at farms if you can get them to participate as to you know like you know what happened where all of a sudden you know out of a batch of 100 tomatoes you just kicked out 10 and why did that happen? If it's basically discoloration or didn't fulfill, you know, what buyers need for something that looks good. Well, guess what? There's a marketplace, you know, for such a thing. A company called Spoiler Alert does a great job at that. Um, and I think that that kind of thing is growing as we see. If it's, um, you know, if there's some risk, you know, as a function of temperature mismanagement in transportation, well, good. You know, the blockchain then can be that data source that you can use an application to pull from it to go, this is true, because we got this temperature reading. We should, you know, either it's alert, you know, and it's risk management as you go through. So, you know, I, I would say that there like blockchain is going to be the data fabric that takes this data. You look at, you know, is this a normal data set? Meaning is this a normal path for an apple, a pear, a mango, an avocado? You know and what data can you use to say you know something something doesn't look right in the system then that then that comparison is then part of an application that you can you know access so I think blockchain gives you analytics and you know an ability to identify how do you improve systems so you can avoid some of it, particularly around water usage, which is a humongous waste and then really, the second thing are marketplaces for. Um, you know, for products that should be in the market anyway. It doesn't necessarily have to become low-cost beverages. It could actually be sold. And so, you know, new demands for that type of thing, I think, you know, become available. Um, You know, and the third is scientific. I think that, you know, when you look at different invasive technologies to identify really complicated things like bacterial formation and so on, all of that, you know, can be part of the blockchain as long as you understand, you know, what the truth record is. And then last is traceability. I do think that, um, you know, know, having an improvement in the speed in which you can trace your products will also allow for better detection. So when you put all this in combination, you're gonna need, you know, a system of record that's shared by the industry that you can rely upon so you can build upon each of these applications. If you only isolate these certain things, then you're only gonna get a partial solution. Blockchain actually provides you visibility to look at, you know, a, a holistic solution for ecosystems, whether it's just a, you know, like a, you know, a series of restaurants or geography or a produce type and so on. So I think that it changes the calculus about what are solutions for food waste. Consumer, I don't know enough about, you know, it's like I don't know how to solve people from throwing away food, you know, past dates. Labeling is going to be a big deal. But what does blockchain really have to do with that? But anyway, that's kind of a long answer to your question.
0: No, that was a fantastic answer. I, I, you just summarized better than I have. I've been trying to really articulate the limitations of blockchain. Like on one hand, how powerful it is, and how you know how great, how massive of a shift it could be. But on the other hand, that it is just a tool. And I, I think what you just said, I hope everyone caught that and really emphasized that point that it is. Uh, the, I think you said called it the data fabric that we can um, use to, to solve some of these issues, but they don't solve them for us. So I think that was, that was excellent. Um, <laughs> what do you think about, you know, more widespread adoption for blockchain technology within the food chain as far as are, are we 10 years away? Are, are we, you know, what do you think, uh, that looks like?
1: Yeah, I wish I had that crystal ball. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I you know, that's what people ask, right? I guess I'll put it maybe more concrete terms. You know, when I when I first started talking about blockchain of food back at the University of UC Davis and they had their first IC Foods conference in I believe what 2016 November, you know, I was the only blockchain of food guy there. <laughs> and um and uh, and I, and there were a number of there were about a handful of companies uh, good uh, friends of ours at ArcNet and another friendly of ours at Provenance.org that we're all beginning. And I'd say that they were certainly a little further along as they had sort of proof of concept. So last year was really about pilots, education, you know, and and, and a much broader sense of the food supply chain getting aware of blockchain. You know, this year you'll definitely see live implementations, you know, of track and trace. Um, you know this new, these notion of ledger systems shedding light on it. So I think you've got a good solid year of just okay. You know we're we're a little bit more than just pilots. Now that being said, as a result that all the like you have consortiums like IBM and Walmart, um, you know, and the group that's behind them like Driscoll's I think and and Kroger and so on. So it's good because that awareness and also them understanding the data you know components that are necessary and then they're going to be looking at like, well, look, we can't be the only blockchain that serves the whole market. So that means there has to be interoperability. So I think there's going to be a period of several years where blockchains are going to get deployed in some fashion and these blockchains have to talk to each other. So you can get full custody records of, you know, I grew this, I own this, I sold this, I invoiced this, I received it, right? So there's going to be a lot of that that goes along. So the grower as one constituent, it, without a doubt, it's probably in some sense going to be, it's going to take the longest. But if they are able to join, you know, small ecosystems, like a couple of the ones that we're putting together and a couple of these other companies, well then once you join one, theoretically, you should be able to go ahead and map to, um, you know, other customers that you, that you represent. So it's just like kind of like your classic web. You know, at first it may be one to one. It could be one to many. The next, you know, you got many to many. And so I don't know what that critical mass of adoption will be, but it has to be some element of growers, certainly on the buy side, whether you're a grocery store or a big food supplier, an enterprise, and then the middle, you know, which is uh, what happens at the distribution level and, of course, the processing between. So theoretically, you could just listen to that and just go, well, Jesus, that's a 20 to 50 year process? Possibly. Uh, I mean, I think in the end, that would be a good thing if that was the the true adoption of such a change. But in the meanwhile, I do think we've got about one to three years of early stage deployments of ecosystems and functionality, track and trace, food safety. And then I think what happens is, is just like we experience with our our farmers is, you know, something if I harvest like six days later, I now match a customer need that I didn't know before. That's really what's going to change things is that. And that's why I said at the outset, it's the unknown data or cobbling of of that together that creates new things. And I think people act upon it very quickly. That part, like that kind of adoption, it's hard to say. But I do think that, you know, in the next, you know, like that's how I see the next three years is more than just pilots, you know, some real life traceability examples. There's going to be a food safety element to it we certainly are focusing on quality so we can help people understand what makes things ripe, fresh, and best to use. Um, And so, you know, we'll certainly see that for the next three years. So I would say that that's what we see here um, in a short period of time. Beyond that, it's going to be up to the the supply chain to take advantage of these things as an infrastructure. And that's, you know, who knows how long that journey is. Hopefully it is 20 to 50 years.
0: Raja, this is so interesting. I I, I I, could go another 20 minutes here and make two episodes out of this, but I didn't <laughs> ask you for that amount of time. So the one more question here, um, you know, talking about a, a long time horizon, even if it's, you know, relatively short or if it is, you know, 20 to 50 years. As far as funding projects like this, we had Origin Trail on uh, a previous episode. They're, they have a protocol that they're they're doing a, a pre-sale for their uh, initial coin offering this month. Do you think an initial coin offering is something that Ripe.io right would be a fit for? And I'll be honest, I'm still trying to wrap my head around exactly how that works.
1: You know, we've been evaluating ICO for quite a long time. You know, my my partner and I, Phil Harris, both come from the financial trading industry. And so we come from the entire world of securities registration, regulations, and so on. And so we've got a very deep and healthy respect for what needs to be done on that perspective. Mm -hmm. And, um, And so we've always had a cautious eye towards what ICO means. I've Fundamentally, I've always thought it, it's if you're you know if you're investing in an entity and you you know whether you call it a donation or not, in essence you you are creating some kind of investable security vehicle. So we wanted to wait to see what the SEC had as as rulings and the IRS and how globally that would get uh, how that would evolve and that's happened. So that's good. I mean, you've got some definition now and and so I think that that's number one. So that being said. When people look at things like tokenization, and they talk about utility tokens, the issue is, is, well, what what is the actual utility? If you're certifying something and using a token to value that or create monetization, that's an interesting possibility. If it's tokenization around the, the value of the transaction, again, it feels like it might be... Um, you know, a sensible use of, of an ICO and a token, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but in the end, you have to understand it's like if you move towards token that serves as fiat, then in essence, I feel like it all falls apart because why bother? You can get settlements in dollars. You can even now do it in Bitcoin and euro or whatever. So it has to have, you know, some, some significant like non-currently like currently used value. And so we've looked at it from that perspective. And I've never we haven't concluded that 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 there's a real natural way. The only way that we've looked at ICO or the token is around publishing. You know, in other words, can you create a, an open federation of tokens that allow individuals or entities to publish information at their control? And so, you know, while that sounds interesting, you know, that can get highly discreet, like you know, one farmer all of a sudden says, All right you know, I'll publish X, right? My my stocks of corn were this high this season, right? It's because of sun. Well, okay. That in of itself is interesting, but what does that mean? So, So I think that, you know, so publishing tokens are always interesting. So in the end, no, I mean, you know, a lot of companies are able to go ahead and obtain pretty large sums of money and that helps them develop. And I think that that's good. But ultimately, if you haven't solved for, you know, value transfer, custody and ownership of these tokens, taxation, uh, consolidated reporting, all the gap accounting that's uh, like not even talked about. There's huge amounts of unfunded liabilities that are actually behind a lot of these ICOs that that you have to take into account. So, you know, there's like kind of old school nuts and bolts that you have to really put in into, the into, into way before you think about ICO. I, In the end, we haven't concluded that that's going to work for us.
0: I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. This blockchain concept within agriculture is becoming more and more uh, talked about. And I've I've been forwarded several articles lately from from other publications that are writing about it. And I think it's cool. Other examples of how blockchain could be used in agriculture context. So if you know anybody who's curious about blockchain and, and you have found value in this series we are doing, I would just appreciate if you would share it with them and uh, try to get them on board with listening to this podcast. Our, our community of, of listeners continues to grow, which really uh, is exciting and encouraging for me. And uh, we are going to continue this series on blockchain and be wrapping it up here in the next four weeks. So hope you enjoy that. And then we'll be moving on to another series, as I mentioned, called Sustainability at Scale. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com. That's future of AGag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.